The following is an audio sermon from Sacred City Church in Davenport, Iowa. For more free audio content, search Sacred City Church in your iTunes store. Uh, my name is Justin. I am the pastor here at Sacred City Church. I want to welcome you to our public gathering. This is only, I think this is, if I'm right, this is our fourth uh, public gathering here in the Junior Theater. We've been blessed with this, new, with this space since the first of the year, and uh, God has just been increasingly gracious to us. Um, we don't really do anything too fancy on Sunday mornings. We practice liturgy, and then we, go, we just preach through books of the Bible, and right now we're in the book of Ephesians. Uh, we started, obviously, in chapter 1, verse 1, and, since, um, and we've just been going verse by verse through the entire book. Uh, we have not went four chapters in four weeks. We actually started early in July and um, with some of our, our core membership stuff. But right now, we're in the fourth chapter. We're at the end of the fourth chapter. We're finishing up the fourth chapter. And part of me is really excited, and part of me, you know, I kind of miss some of the stuff we've been through. We've been through some really good things. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are all big picture, cosmic stuff, what God has done in Christ to renew all of creation, that God's got this huge mission, this huge plan for the renewing of all of creation, and he uses specific things to do that and to accomplish that purpose. And now, chapter 4, we kind of turned a corner. We talked about how now God's going to give us some things to do because of what Christ has done in us and what God has done in us. Now, we're, going to, we're kind of turning a corner, and um, God's giving us some things to do. And last week, we specifically talked about when we believe, when a person says that I believe in Jesus Christ, God does something unique inside of them. The Bible says that God regenerates their heart. He actually regenerates their heart. Then he gives them faith to believe. And then they believe and they get a new identity. They get a new person. Paul used the term a whole new self. They don't just get, uh, they don't just, if you've heard this, they don't just get religion. Well, that guy got religion. Now he doesn't go out with us anymore. That guy got religion, so now he doesn't talk the way he used to talk. That, that girl got religion, so she doesn't do those things that she used to do. We, last week we showed the, the complete juxtaposition of the gospel and moralism. That many of us here come to Jesus, we hear, come be a good person, come be moral, come get religion. And those two things are at the completely, complete ends of two different spectrums. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes us into a new person before it gives us new behaviors. It's a new identity before we get new behaviors. So uh, that, was, that was the sermon last week. That's what we talked about a lot last week. And now we're going to jump off from there this week. We're going to go on. Uh, Paul's going to talk a lot about some specific behaviors. Okay? What does it look like now to put on this new identity? When we put it on and we become this new person, we get this new self, what does it look like? How does that person live? What are the behaviors? The way we like to say it around here are the identity produces new rhythms of life. New ways of life, new outlook. It renewed us last week, we said, in the spirit of our mind. We get, to, we get a new outlook on life. We get a new worldview. We get a new imagine, Christian imagination that grabs us by our gut and shapes our lives in a certain direction. Well, what does that look like? Practically, what does that look like? That's what we're going to talk about today. So um, this new identity that we've been given in Christ, there's several you know, aspects of it, but one of them is we have a new father, that we are sons and we are daughters of God through faith in Christ, that God is the perfect father. What does that mean? That means I'm a father myself. It means I want to protect. I want to watch over my kids. I want the best outcome for them. Um, I need to discipline my kids to produce that outcome. There's a lot of different things, but God is a perfect father. That means one thing, he's sovereign. See, I can't control how people treat my kid. I can't control, you know, everything that's going to happen to my kid. I, I, I'm, I'm finite, but God is sovereign. That means he's in control of all things, and as the song said, all things work together for my good. Now listen, this means God knows what you need, and God knows what you think you need, and those are completely different. And God does not really care about what you think you need. God knows what you need, and what, what, what do I need? You need... According to scripture, the whole goal of this thing is to be sanctified, to be made into the image of Christ. That's the end game of being a Christian. All right, It's all for the glory of God, it's to renew the earth, all these things, but to be made into the image of Christ. So that's what God's working out with you. He's working you into the image of Christ. So when you can kind of, when you get something that comes in your life that you don't like, you can know, if you, if you know that God is sovereign, that it's in your life to do something in you, to produce something, to sand off some rough edges, to bring about sanctification to make you into the image of Christ. 
And if you pitch a fit and you throw on the floor and you say, why God, why God? You just prove you're completely immature, just like your baby does, right? When you say, no, you can't have a sucker for dinner. And they pitch a fit thinking, you don't love me, right? I want a sucker for dinner. I know you do because you are immature, and you'll get a bellyache later, and the whole thing goes on. God does not care as much, per se, about your happiness. He's making you to the image of Christ, which is for the glory of God, which will ultimately be for your joy. So, to accomplish this goal, he gives us a new identity. We get a whole new self before we put on new behaviors. Okay, this is, I'm going to say it again today. Being a Christian is not a call to being a moralist. Okay? It is not moralism. It is not do good things and God will love you. Be a good person and God will love you. That is not Christianity. Moralism is concerned with the outside of the cup. Jesus used an illustration about the Pharisees in his day, the religious people of his day. And he said, you're so concerned with cleaning the outside of the cup, but, it doesn't really, but you're filthy on the inside. Christianity is about getting a whole new self, getting a whole new heart, getting a whole new identity that changes the inside of the cup, and then it works itself out. This identity works itself out through the rhythms of life and eventually washes the inside of the cup and the outside of the cup. So here we are in verse 25, and Paul's going to tell us, if you are a Christian, if you believe, if you have faith, you've been given a new identity, and this is what's going to happen. This is the behaviors that will follow. Okay? This is what he's going to produce in us through the Spirit, through the power of the gospel. This is what he's going to produce in us. All right? And I want to illustrate this. First off, um, think of this. You've got two glasses. Okay? You've got two cups of water. One glass is filled with murky, dirty, bitter water. All right? The other glass is filled with fresh, clean water. Okay? Someone comes along and you bump one of those water. You bump the, the dirty water and what's going to spill out? Dirty water, right? You bump the dirty water, dirty water's going to spill out. You bump the clean water, what's going to spill out? Clean water, all right? Listen, the bump doesn't make the water bitter. The bump doesn't make the water clean. The bump just reveals what's inside the glass. This is the way Jesus talks about our behavior. Everything on the outside bumps us and reveals what's in our heart. We don't like to think this. We like to say, uh, well, you know, I, my neighbor, he's just a real jerk. So, you know, when I'm mean to him, when I'm cross to him, when I don't pray for him, when, when, I'm, when I'm just mean, you know what? It's because he's just mean to me. So he, hits, he bumps me, and then I just sin because he sinned against me, and it just, that's just how it happens. I get bumped by him, and I, I respond back, and I sin. Now, the bump doesn't cause you to sin. The bump reveals what's in your heart. That's the way Jesus talks about it. Out of the heart flow the issues of life. Out of the heart flows all of your greed, all of your envy, all of your sexual morality. The reason you can't click on the internet and close the porn window isn't because, oh, there's porn on the internet. It's such a bad thing. It is, but that's not the reason. The reason you do it is there's something inside of you that craves it, that desires it, that wants it. Something on the inside of you. The reason you don't stand up and, and men these days, right? We just saw this huge ocean or this huge uh, cruise liner sink, right? And the valiant, right, just the man of valor, right, the, the captain of his vessel that goes down with the ship, right, bails, first one off. First one off. And, they're, and they're, if you listen to it, the Coast Guard is, Captain, get back on your vessel. You have to help lead, the, you are in charge of leading this rescue operation. I need to know how many kids, how many women, how many children are on that vessel. Get back on your vessel. And he's, oh, I'm not getting back on that vessel. Right? Refusing to be a man, to carry his duty, to have big shoulders that carry a burden and carry a load. This is just absolutely indicative of men in our culture. Can't carry a burden anymore. Can't lay their life down for their wife anymore. Can't carry heavy burden. Can't get out and shovel a, a, a sidewalk when it's cold out. Too busy racking up the points on Modern Warfare 3. Pathetic. And then, and then I love his story. Right now, the whole world's against him. So I slipped and fell in the lifeboat. Brother, this is a downward spiral for you, okay? It's not looking good. It's absolutely not looking good. 
So you, you want to, we want to say, my wife is volatile. You don't know how she responds to me. You don't know the look on her face. You don't know what she says to me. That's why I'm bitter towards her. That's why I get angry. That's why I lash out at her. That's why I, I hide in the garage and I don't ever talk to her. That's why I can't lead her spiritually and, and wash her with the water of the word like scripture talks about. That's why I can't lead devotions with our family because she's so volatile. Just a bump. Paul says, that's a bump. The bump reveals what's in your heart. The bump reveals what's inside the cup already. The bump doesn't change the water from bitter to clean or from clean to bitter. The bump reveals what's in your heart, or I would say, where your identity rests. Some of us spend our entire lives, this is what moralism does. Moralism spends our entire life trying not to be bumped. I'm just not going to be around that type of person because they make me angry. And when I get angry, I get angry. And when I get angry, I get angry. And I just say stuff that I, you know, I just speak the truth. No. You sin when you get angry. So, so moralism says I'm just not going to be around them. I'm just going to ignore my neighbor. I'm going to pull in my garage, close the door, and act like I'm going to put up a six-foot privacy fence. I don't have to deal with them. Moralism says if I can avoid being bumped, I avoid Getting, being dirty. I avoid having my, my sin spill out. I avoid seeing that act, those, those things happen. So moralism avoids it. I have a problem with alcohol. I better, not, I better stay away from the alcohol section. I better not, I better not, you know, I better just demonize it. It's alcohol's problem. It's not my, it's not my problem. It's alcohol's problem. Moralism spends its life trying not to be bumped. And Jesus says that's not where it happens. It happens in the heart. Temptation, no, no, wait, wait, hold on. So what do we, how, if, we're, if we're about the mission of God, if we want to see disciples made and the kingdom advanced, how can you be on mission if you're worried about not being bumped? How can you lead someone to Christ if you're worried about not being bumped? You're going to stay away from people like that, people who sin, people who don't know Christ, people who are far from him. You're going to stay away. You're going to distance yourself from those type of people because it might affect you. That's why many times churches become um, th this gated citadel with huge walls and they protect themselves from the evil culture around them. They homeschool all their kids. I'm not saying homeschool is bad, but they homeschool all the kids. and They're worried about everything going on in the culture. And oh boy, you know, back in my day, it's just going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, it is. All right, things are getting a little crazy out. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is an internal power that changes us, that gives us power to live in a culture in unique, distinct Christian ways. It's not a culture that causes us to pull back and hide and build bigger walls and afraid that the world's going to get us. So temptation, now this, this might be new for you, temptation is just Satan trying to get you to believe that you, can, that you need to find yourself. What? Temptation is just Satan tempting you to believe that you need to find yourself. What does that mean? Let me, let me use Jesus as an, as an illustration. When Jesus was baptized, he, he was uh, 30 years old and basically had spent his whole life uh, being a carpenter, a knuckle banger, all right? Uh, um, his whole life, he was just banging nails and, and building stuff and, and really in poverty up until this point. 30 years old, he had done no miracles. He, you know, he had done nothing truly spectacular, and he steps up, in the, and, and John the Baptist says, whoa, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Come be baptized. Or, and Jesus said, I'm going to be baptized, and John's like, no, I, I want to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, this is, it's got to be done this way. Okay, I'm going I'm to be the perfect man. I'm going to be baptized. We know this, many of us know the story. Jesus gets dunked. As soon as he gets dunked, what happens? God from heaven sends the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes down and rests on him. People can see this, and they hear this, God speaking. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus had done nothing yet. He hadn't, done, he hadn't healed anybody. He hadn't died for anybody. He hadn't done any of those things. But God says, this is my Son. I'm pleased in him. That is an identity-confirming statement. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, 
We, we learned in Ephesians 1 that God says the same thing about us, that we are the adopted children of God. We are not illegitimate sons and daughters. We don't have to earn our Father's approval. He has given us his approval in Christ. He has solidified our identity in Christ. That means I don't have to go out and earn an identity. I don't have to go out and prove to the world, prove to my father, prove to my mother, prove to my friends and my family who I am. My identity settled. What does that do? Immediately... The Spirit of God leads Jesus out into the desert to be tempted by the devil immediately. How does Satan tempt Jesus? First thing he says is, if you're truly the Son of God, do this. What's he tempting him with? His identity. If you're really who God says you are, prove it. If you're really good, prove it. If you're really, I mean, isn't that what the world speaks to us constantly? If you're really, if you want to be worth something, prove it. Get a good job, make a lot of money. Madonna is quoted as saying every two years she has to put out a new album or do something great because she gets this overwhelming sense that she's average. This overwhelming sense that she's average, so she knows she's got to go out and put something else out to prove to the world that she's valuable, that she's special. That's what Satan does. He says, prove your identity, earn your identity, make your identity. And the gospel of Jesus Christ says, receive your identity. You're a son, you're a daughter, you're accepted, you're loved, you're forgiven, you're in the family of God. Receive an identity and live out of that. We know Jesus because his identity was perfectly formed in Christ and rested in God. It rested in God that when he was bumped by Satan, when temptation came and it bumped him, clean water came out every time. He said, get behind me, Satan. He said, this is what the word of God says. He says, he, he, he refused to give in to temptation because he knew where his identity was. He knew who he was in the Father. <clears throat> being a Christian isn't about avoiding being bumped. It's about letting Christ change you from the inside out so that when you are bumped, you respond different. It's a ref this is what Christianity is about. It's a reflexive obedience. It's a reflexive, it's not a strained, dutiful, I'm going to soak it up and read my Bible because good people read their Bible and I want to be a good person. It's not that, it's a reflexive. It's the Spirit of God moves in me and I want to read my Bible because it's for my joy, because it's for the glory of God, because God's doing something in all the world and I can't see it unless I know what's going on in Scripture. It's reflexive. This new identity, now listen, this new identity this is how God built it. He puts it in you, and then he puts, something, he puts us in the world, and he puts us in something that's going to work it out. It's, it's going to work. It. It's like this. If you know anything about adopting children, when you adopt that child, you, it's, it's a work of sheer grace, right? Those kids didn't earn anything. Those kids don't have any money to offer you. Those kids don't have anything. You're adopting them, bringing them into your family. But it's going to take a while for them to learn how to live in your family, to learn what it means to be, for me, a dean, right? This is what it means to be a dean. This is how we function as a family. This is the rhythms that, we, that play out. They might come from, a, from a, a completely different background from me, maybe a different culture from me, and it's going to take a while for them living in community with me to work out these new identities. Oh, you mean I don't have to, um, you know, do a bajillion chores to get food at night or whatever it is? No, you don't. Your father provides for you. You mean I don't have to go do? No, you don't. It's going to take a while for these new identities to work themselves out into new rhythms. So what does that mean? That means this. God works our new identity out in community and on mission. God works our new identity out in community and on mission. If you didn't know, if, you, if, you, if you're just new to the game, community will bump you. That person, yes, that person as soon as I say that person, you probably know who that person is. That person will get on your last nerve. That person will keep talking. That person will do that look at you at that time, at that moment, when they should not do it. And community will bump you. I will say something that you don't like, and that will bump you. Community bumps us. Do you know what I mean by this? It rubs us. It, it, it grates on our nerves. It challenges us. It bumps us. 
and it makes us respond, but the way we respond or how we respond is, is, is what's going on. How is our identity being worked out? And also mission will bump us. A simple question um, can challenge this when you, when you just think, um, are you on mission for Christ? Do you pray for your neighbor? Do you pray for the person that sits in the cubicle next to you at work? Do you pray for your patient? Do you pray for those working out next to you? Do you pray for them? Do you desire that God would shine his face and shine his light on them and give them grace in Jesus Christ? Do you desire that? That bumps us, right? Because I'm really proud and arrogant and selfish, and most of the time I'm considered, a, I'm, I'm thinking more about getting my good workout in than I am about the person that's next to me. Or shoveling my, I'm going to shovel my sidewalk, but that's the line right there. You're on your own, 80-year-old lady. Sorry. They put that line in the concrete for a reason. It tells me that's where I stop, right? What's going on in your heart? It's bumping you. Can I ask you this morning? If what the Bible, and this is all my introduction, by the way. If the Bible, if what the Bible says is true, if God has really reached down in heaven and given you a new identity, a new self, and a new heart, and he's given you this regenerated heart, how has it affected your walk? That's how we started chapter 4. Walk this way. Don't walk that way anymore. Walk this way. If he's really done this, if you've reached down and given you a new heart, how has it affected your heart? Answer that question for yourself. How has the reception of God's life affected your life? Say, we've been giving the life of God. How has the reception of that life changed your life? And I want to make it even more clear because in light of what we talked about last week of moralism and Christianity, how is your life different from a good person? How is your life different from a good person. Being a gospel-centered person, being someone who believes the gospel of Christ, that we're saved by grace, that changes us in a different way than just being a nice, neighbor, moral, good person. Has being adopted by God only made you more moral or religious? Paul is showing us in this text what we are supposed to look like. The call to us as a church is to live radically counter-cultural, we are a countercultural community, a community of authenticity, saturated by grace, who walk in humility and love people outside of our community. We're to show the world, I love this, we're to show the world what it's not, but what it could be through the grace of Christ. We're to show the world what it's not, but what it could be through the power of the gospel. Your neighbors and friends should look at us and say, wow, those people are alive. They're alive in a way that I don't really understand and I haven't really experienced. That community is radically different than anything I've ever known in a good way, kind of. Like, it should put them on it. Like, why is there people at their house all the time? Why are they gracious? Why, what's going on? Why do they respond the way they respond? Why don't they get angry when I'm angry? Why, what's different about them? See, the cultural community is completely different. Cultural community, you want to go, you know, be a part of a golf club or a fitness club or, or a knitting club. Everybody, it's, it's all homogeneous. Everybody's pretty much alike. They've got the same interests. They've got the same things going on. It's about me. It's about what we're doing together. Gospel community is completely different. People from all different backgrounds that like all different things, that completely different political agendas and completely different, uh, you know, just conservative, liberal, all these different views come together in the body of Christ. It's heterogeneous. The thing that unites us is that we've received the free grace of God. Different colors, different races, different ethnic backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds. But we're united in the gospel of Christ. And this is why, this is why. I, I, said, I mentioned it before, but God is on a mission. We say that God is a missional God. 
He wants the world to know him. He wants people to know how good he is because he's the ultimate thing. Obviously, God, by definition, is an uncreated creator. He's the ultimate of all things. Everything has its life and breath from him. So everything finds its purpose and meaning and glory back in him. So he wants people to know what ultimate life looks like. He wants people to know him. So what does he do? He sends his own son because we can't do it. He dies the death that we all deserve. He lived the life that we all should have lived. Through his resurrection, he gives this new life to us, and he gives us this new identity. And he says, now that I've given you this new identity, go live this way and show the world what I'm like. Go live this way and show the world what I'm like. Christopher Wright, a theologian that I love, says this, there, are, there is no biblical mission without biblical ethics. There is no biblical mission without biblical ethics. People see the life of God in us and they desire to know that God who changed our life. But how, again, is that different from moralism? We, we, when we think that, biblical ethics, biblical mission, we think, oh, I need to be a really, really good person. I need to never sin. I need to never fail. I need to never blah, blah, fill in the blank. And they'll see my perfection and they'll say, wow, I could be perfect too. I want to be that. No, that sounds really arrogant. So what is it what does it look like? What does this gospel-centered community look like? All right, now let's get to our text. Verse 25, all right? We're in chapter 4, Ephesians 4, chapter 25. If you uh, need a Bible, there's some sitting on the back. Rich can, if you just raise your hand, Rich can grab you one. We also use version on a tablet, or uh, if you have a tablet device or a smartphone, you can go to version Bible app, hit live events, and we're right there, and it's all right there for you. So, Chapter 4, verse 25, what does a gospel-centered community look like? Look, let's read it. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Okay, this neighbor, this one actually does not refer to your actual neighbor that you live next to. This is referring to somebody in the body of Christ, fellow believers in the body of Christ. So the first thing that the gospel does, or one of the things that gospel does and it produces in us, we are to be... A community of honesty. A community of honesty. Now, this should make sense. In Hebrews 6.18, Scripture says that it is impossible for God to lie. All right, in, in the book of John 8.44, Jesus said that Satan is the father of all lies and can't even speak the truth. So it's naturally, it follows that since Christ cannot tell a lie, since God cannot tell a lie, that we are honest people. But this means something far deeper than that. It doesn't just mean that you don't lie. It doesn't just mean... Um, <clears throat> that, you, that you just tell the truth all the time. It does mean that, but this is what it means. It also means being open and honest with one another. This is being, oh, I'm going to say that again. This means being open and honest with one another. It's a shame that many times the church is the most fake place on the, on the face of the planet. People walk, I mean, they fight on their way to the, church, right? Their wife, the kids didn't get dressed. They got toothpaste smeared. The hair's still sticking up. Like, dad did not dress the kids appropriately. Mom's not feeling good. He drags them in here. As soon as we hit the door, and the face turns, and we're happy, and everybody's smiling, and we put on, we put on airs, right? We put on the dog, and we want everybody to think that our stuff, we got it all figured out, and everything's great at our home, and we live in our nice little Christian subculture. This scripture comes straight against that. And it's saying, be open and honest with one another. And we really work this out. I mean, this is, if you've ever been to one of our missional communities, this is where we really work it out in missional community. We try to be open and honest with one another in missional community. And this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, this is something, I love this because this is something that the gospel has to produce in us that you can only do through a new identity. You can't do this yourself. For those of you who think, well, I'm always open and honest with people. I let them tell, I just tell them how it is. No, 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 no. You're not open and honest with yourself. You're arrogant and self-righteous and think you know more than everybody else. And when you give it to them, you don't give it to them in love. That's not what he's talking about here. This new identity that he's given us, we are by nature people who want to hide. Adam and Eve in the garden, as soon as they sin, first thing, God comes looking for them, what do they do? Adam jumps in the bushes, right? Right? He jumps in the bushes. As soon as we, he realized that he was a sinner, that he had made a mistake, that he had re rebelled against God, he jumps in the bushes and hides. Then what's he do? He puts up fig leaves, covers himself up. We are people who want to hide our sin. 
We want to hide how broken we are. We want to hide our failures. We want to hide our faults. We don't want people to really know the depths of who we are. We don't want people to know that we're really that jacked up. But this is another reason I love reading the Bible. The scriptures are so helpful here. Because the Bible is blatant about our wickedness. It says you can do nothing on your own. You are completely wicked through and through. And you need nothing can save you but the grace of Christ. So that means when, when, when we sit down in missional community, I'm not wondering, is this person impeccably moral? Is this person perfect? Hmm. I wonder. I'm sitting down looking across a person and I know that they're a sinner. I know they're doing everything in their power to cover up their sin, to hide it, to hide from themselves. Paul says that even the mind and the eyes of unbelievers are blind to their own sin, that, that we don't want to see our stuff. We, don't wa- we, we almost can't live with the fact that we're really that bad, that we sin not because somebody bumps us, but we sin because it's in us. It's who we are. It's not our neighbor's fault. It's not your wife's fault. It's not your kid's fault that you freak out over spilled milk. It's your fault. It's your sin, and we've got to own it. We've got to own it and admit it and be honest and open with each other. When I see that, when I believe what scriptures say that we're all guilty sinners and we're all that jacked up, it completely frees me. I don't have to dance anymore. I don't have to put on the airs. I don't have to act like I'm somebody. I don't act like I'm the pastor and I have it all together. I don't have to act like that. It's garbage. I'm a sinner saved by grace, and I consistently prove it. I consistently, daily prove it. <clears throat> when I believe that, it frees me to admit how jacked up I am. So Paul says right away, a community saved by grace, a community with a new identity, is a community that's open and honest with one another. So because we're honest, look what happens. Verse 26, this might change some of your lives right here. Um, Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So Paul says, because and when you're being honest with one another, you're going to be angry. Now this might just change your life right here for some of you who've thought it's a sin to be angry. Okay, not true. It is not a sin to be angry. In fact, scripture commands us to be angry with a little clause at the end, right? Be angry and do not sin. Why? Because without, ang- you, you, without anger, you don't, even, you don't have love. Love gets angry at the thing that's wounding the thing it loves. If someone hurts my child, I should get angry at that or the person who inflicted the damage. That should happen. That's natural. That's biblical. God gets angry at sin. God gets angry at the people who have hurt you, the wounds that have taken place. God gets angry at those things. His anger is set against those things. And at the judgment day, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, God's righteous anger will be poured out on everyone who is unrepentant. Everyone who consisted in their sin, who tried to prove to God that they weren't really that bad and they could get to God on their own, they could get to heaven on their own, and they could be moral, and they could be good, and they could, or the people that just said, screw it all, I'm going to do whatever I want, there is no God. God's righteous anger will pour out on them. That's what Scripture says. So we, should, we are commanded in Scripture, we're commanded to get angry. Now here's the thing, in our sin most of the time, when we get angry, we do sinful things. We say things we shouldn't say. We do things we shouldn't do. Some of you throw stuff and break stuff. Some of you punch the holes in walls. You're sinning in your anger. Okay? When we sit in a missional community and someone tells their story and they, and they get it, and, and, and so we've heard so many stories of, of, of negligent parents who are abusive, who do hurtful things, who are consumed with the ways of the world and they're selfish and they just want what they want and they, they neglect their child. And the, the parents don't know it at the time, but looking back 10, 15 years later, the children are still bent. They're still hurt. They're still shaped by the sins of their parents. And when we're sitting there and we're listening to those stories, you should get angry. You should be grieved by it. It should hurt you for them. That, that anger is real. 
That parent was so selfish. That parent didn't know the life of God. That parent didn't know what it meant to live in the life of Christ. Didn't know how to parent in, in, in biblical ways. Didn't know how to love their children in biblical ways. And it's damaged that soul. It's damaged that person. That should grieve us. It should make us angry. An appropriate response is prayer. Appropriate response is saying, man, that makes me so angry. That was sin against you. That was hurt and grieving. It's an appropriate response. Inappropriate response would be, get my shotgun, let's go find her, okay? I mean, I, I've thought it, right? I've thought it, and that might be my response if someone hurts my kid. It might be. I'll be in jail preaching the gospel. That might happen, all right? I'm just going to be honest. It might happen, okay? Just letting you know. Anybody get any ideas out there? So, number one, it makes us a community of honesty and openness, Okay? In that honesty and openness, we're commanded to be angry at things that God gets angry at. We're commanded to be angry at things that hurt people, hurt the message of God, hurt the mission of God. We're commanded to be angry at that. I get really angry at people who preach the fa a false gospel, a prosperity gospel, a gospel of feel-good, self-helpism. I get angry at that because God gets angry at that. It stinks in his nostrils, so I get angry at that. Just saw, I read an article this week on the top 10 paid pastors in America. Pastors bringing in over a million dollars a year. And I literally throw up in my mouth. And I, it just, it's so heinous. So heinous. <clears throat> okay, number one, that's number one. Number two, let, let's look here. Um, verse 27, give no opportunity to the devil. Uh, verse 28, let the thief, he doesn't pull any punches. If you steal, you're a thief, okay? Let's just say it. He doesn't say, let the nice people who just occasionally take things that aren't theirs, who just occasionally cheat on their taxes. And no, no, he just says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, this is uh, pretty crazy. Our, our culture says, work hard so that you can be self-sufficient. Work hard, make money, spoil yourself, you deserve it. Build your own private kingdom. You deserve the motorcycle, you deserve the boat, you deserve the Harley, you deserve the clothes, you deserve the retirement account, you deserve the vacation, you deserve it all. You deserve it. You work hard, you deserve it. That's what our culture preaches and teaches. Look at how the gospel challenges that worldview. Paul says that the gospel, that gospel people work hard. Look at the word so that. So that they can provide for others in need. We work hard so that we can provide for others in need. The motivation for working hard is to be able to share it with our community. That's, that's countercultural, right? Um, when Christianity was just getting started, actually it had been started for a few hundred years, it was about 360 A.D. Um, it wasn't, it, it was just getting roots. It was getting, it was growing and growing and growing. And, and the, in Rome, the, the uh, emperor Julian said this. Uh, they were having some really tough times. They had no welfare programs. If you were poor, sorry, you just, you just, you were poor and you literally would die. Okay? Or you would try to figure out some way to, to live. Well, what was happening in Rome because of this unjust system where the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poor and there was no welfare and there's none of this stuff going on, Christians stepped in and said, we can show people the gospel here. We can display. We can put the gospel on display here. So what the Christians did is they took care of their own poor. They took care of the poverty, the widows, the orphans, but they also took care of the Roman poor. And Julian's quoted, and this is what he says, in AD 360. <clears throat> he says, these Christians care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. It was, shock, it was a shocking apologetic of the gospel. It was a shocking display of the gospel. And then we know that Christianity became the official Roman uh, religion of the time. The early church had a reputation for generosity. Do we? Who around you has a need that you could help meet? Is there someone in your MC who needs some help? Your missional community, is there someone that you know that they're, having, they're on hard times and they need some help? Are you willing to meet that need or are you maxed out? Because you've been building your own personal kingdom. The credit cards are maxed out. 
you've already spent, the overtime that you've got coming this week, everything. I mean, everything's going into your, building your private kingdom, so you've got nothing left to share. The gospel produces a generous community. One thing that's different here at Sacred City, because of my aversion to the prosperity gospel, my aversion to that, we don't even take uh, offering. We don't even have that time during the service. Many, many of you are probably maybe used to having an offering time. We don't do that. Uh, we give, uh, 80% of our people give online at sacredcitychurch.com, and we have a box in the back by the box office, a little thing that stands there that you can drop your tithes and your offering in it. In it. Because this is not about making money. This isn't about amassing a kingdom, personal kingdom, and, ma- and amassing wealth. This is about the mission of God moving forward. Are you generous? Generous. Painfully is what something the gospel does inside of us. Why? Because Christ, though he was rich, became poor so that you might become rich in him. Right? Our generosity can display the gospel to the people around us. You know the grace of our Lord, for though he was rich, for our sake he became poor so we might become rich. Number three, I know we're all getting real quiet because this is getting really close to home. Number three, the gospel creates a community of gracious speech. Look at verse 29. You know what, on on 28, let me tell you that some people like to say, well, I'm under grace, so it doesn't matter how I live. Wrong. God changes your identity and he produces new behaviors in you. That's why he says, let the thief, he's not denying you once were a thief, I was once a thief. Okay, I stole when I was a teenager. I was a thief. Okay, I stole. I was a thief. He's not denying the fact that you were a thief, but he's saying, let the thief no longer steal. Let him realize what Christ has done in him. Let him realize he's got a new identity and let him not just stop stealing. I love this. Go get a job. J-O-B. Word of the day. Job. Right? Go get a jobby job and work hard and provide for those not only in your family, but also those in your community. Those who are, who are maybe got laid off because of the economy, those who have had a tough time, maybe a medical condition, maybe something's come in, work hard so that you can provide for them. That's repentance. That's what repentance looks like. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. <clears throat> okay, so verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, look here, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, the word corrupt, there no corrupt speech. It's a brilliant word. Um, it literally means uh, rotten fruit or rancid fish, okay? That's what, it, that's what it meant. So he says, don't let any rotten or rancid talk come out of your mouth. But what, what it doesn't mean, it's not, I mean, I hate to say this for some of you moralists, it's going to be really difficult. He's not talking about cuss words. It's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about words that don't give grace to those who hear. So this is what I like to say. This isn't blatant just. I mean, vulgar language is vulgar language. He is including that. But it isn't just blatantly vulgar. This includes useless words like pithy platitudes or man-centered self-help-isms like this. You deserve better. You're better than that. Don't lower yourself to that person's level. Things will get better. Just keep on. Keep it on. It will all work out in the end. Okay, every one of those statements is from our culture and doesn't have a biblical root. Things will work out. Well, maybe not. John the Baptist ended up with his head on a platter. Didn't work out too well for him. Jesus was naked and nailed on a cross. Things will work out. All the apostles were murdered, hung up. Some of them were hung upside down. Some of them were boiled alive. Some of them were tortured. Everyone went, I think everyone went, but John was a martyr for the faith. Didn't really work out too well for them. I mean, ultimately, we can talk heaven, kingdom, new, new creation, right? Obedience to God, all of that worked out, but not in this life. So just keep on keeping on, and everything will be fine. Oh, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches keep on keeping on, and God will be enough. God will meet you in the midst of your suffering and he will be enough in the midst of your suffering. Your kids might walk away. Your kids might do some crazy stuff. But if you go to Christ and you go to God, he will be the firm foundation for your soul to rest at night. 
If your peace and happiness depends on the obedience of your kid, good luck with that. Good luck with that. You're going to spend a whole lot of time with sleepless nights. You're spending a whole lot of time saying, God, why? I, I went to church every Sunday, and my daughter's still doing this, and my son's still doing this. Yes, because she's a sinner, just like you were, just like we are. But we can rest in the truth of the gospel that we are accepted in our mess. We are accepted as we're jacked up. And God will be enough for us in the midst of our suffering. So in the missional community, I mean, we're tempted to do all these little things that we heard on Oprah or something, right? Things will get better. You're worth more than that. Yeah, appeal to their pride. That works out well. Fourth, last thing, a community of forgiveness. So it makes us into um, a community of honesty and openness, it makes us into a community of, ge- of generosity, a community of gracious speech, and a community of forgiveness. Verse 30 and thir- to 32, and do not grieve, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Thank God the day of redemption is coming where all things will be made new, that this sinful struggling body of flesh will be made new. And one day when Christ returns, I will no longer struggle with sin. I will no longer struggle with being honest with people. I will no longer struggle being generous with people. I will no longer struggle speaking gracious words to people. One day on the day of redemption, all things will be made new and will live in the light of the glory of our Father's face. Praise be to God. One day all things will be made new. 31, let all bitterness, just going to let that one sit for a second, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, Forgiving one another as Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. Again, this is radically countercultural. The world says if you've been hurt, wronged, offended, slighted, or taken advantage of in any way, you better hold a grudge. You should hold a grudge. You should be bitter towards them. You should make them pay in some way. Or just bail. Just end the relationship. Just separate yourself from them. That's what the world says. The world doesn't know how to forgive when it's been wronged. But I'm hurt. But you offended me. But you slighted me. But that was mean. So we make them pay. Verbally. Stonewall. That's where that, I don't want to, I'm not going to lower myself to that person's level. I'm not like you. When we do that, that's what we say. You're bad, I'm good. I would never treat people like that. I would never do what you've done to me. I would never do that to someone. Self-righteousness. But look how a person whose identity is firmly settled in Christ, look how they respond. They forgive. They put away bitterness. They put away wrath. They put away anger. They put away clamor and slander. They're kind to one another. Oh my goodness, this word right here. Tender-hearted. One of my favorite statements, and I'm going to butcher it because it's not in my notes, so it's coming out of my memory, is by C.S. Lewis, who says, you don't want to be hurt? You don't want to be hurt anymore? You've been hurt by people, and you don't want to be hurt anymore? Okay, become hard-hearted. Put your, put your heart away. Lock it away. Lock it away in a box so no one can hurt it. And you know what happens? Something miraculous happens when it's locked away. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't get broken. It becomes unbreakable. When you lock your heart away and you, and, you let, and you become hard-hearted and you don't want to be hurt, you don't want to be wounded, it doesn't just guard you, it becomes unbreakable. And what that means is love can't even get in. You can't feel with people. You can't grieve with people. You can't even be emotional with people. You don't know what it means to be empathetic towards people. You don't feel love and grace anymore because your heart has been hardened and it's been locked away. God says, when you've seen the forgiveness I've offered you in Christ, you'll be kind. You'll be tenderhearted. 
You know, tenderhearted, let's just be honest. That's the ability to be hurt. That's the, and that's scary. If you're a man in here, you know what? This is probably universal. But I know men don't want to be hurt. You walk with a swagger because you don't want to be hurt. I get it. You don't get that option. As a Christian, you don't get that option. Being a man is about being hurt. Being a man is about taking beatings. That's what being a man is. People started talking to me. They asked me one time what sanctification was. And I said, you know what sanctification is? Sanctification is kind of like just being willing to take a beating. And whoever takes it the longest wins. Just being miserable. Kind of, I mean, that's kind of what sanctification feels like sometimes. Who has the guts to be miserable for a little while? Right? You're going to get through it. But if I'm rejecting pain... If I'm rejecting weakness, if I reject being wounded and hurt by people, I'm never going to grow into the image and likeness of Christ because we serve a God who became weak. We serve a God who took wounds. We serve a God who openly was beaten and crushed by people. He could have and disintegrated them. He could have called lightning down. He could have called 10,000 angels and one angel like killed like 13,000 people. I can't remember the exact number in the Old Testament. Our God became weak and allowed people that he could crush with the breath of his mouth to wound him. That's what our Savior did. This is what, this right here is what gospel-centered change looks like. This is what it looks like to put on a new identity and have new rhythms flow out of that new identity. When I look to the cross, And I remember the greatness of my sins against God. And out of sheer grace, he forgave me through the substitutionary death of his son. It frees me to forgive those who have sinned against me. And that statement, that statement really wraps up this whole sermon. You want to know what a gospel-centered community looks like? It looks like Jesus. All of these characteristics of a gospel-centered church are found in Christ. He was honest and open and perfectly true. He was ultimately generous, even to the extreme of giving up his own life for us. He was God's word made flesh, whose blood, the scriptures say, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel and the blood of goats and the blood of bulls. He was God's word made flesh. He was radically forgiving, even to the point he's hanging on a cross naked with nails through his hands and feet, a spear in his side, crown of thorns on his head. He had been beaten and crushed. And he looked out and he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He's forgiving the men who we're hanging him on the cross and in turn forgiving us for our rejection of him. Jesus Christ was radically welcoming and radically forgiving. That's what it means to believe the gospel, to believe that and have that identity changed and to live new life out of that. And you might be in this room and you might not be a Christian and you might be thinking, you know what? I think I'm a lot more like Jesus than most Christians. I think I'm more honest. I think I'm more gracious. I think I'm more generous. I think I'm more forgiving than any any Christian I know. That may be true. You might be. But God doesn't grade on a curve. He does not forgive people who look a little bit like Jesus. He doesn't accept people who look a little bit like Jesus. He only welcomes people into his family who look exactly like Jesus. Only completely perfect people. I hope you see our dilemma. It's not me. It's not you. Scripture's clear on that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So how do we get back in relationship with God if he only accepts perfect people? Our only hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the life We could not live. Absolutely perfect. He died the death that our sins deserve. We deserve the death. Death. Punishment for our sins. Jesus died that death for us. The Father was pleased with his sacrifice and raised him from the dead. And that resurrecting new power, that new identity, that new life, that new self can be ours through what what we call gift righteousness. We accept by grace through faith in Christ alone. If we accept the work that Christ did on our behalf, he gives us gift 
righteousness. His perfect record, his perfect report card goes to us. So when we stand before God, we hold up Jesus' report card and not ours anymore. It's the only way to be in relationship with, with God. That's the only way to, earn, to get back into right relationship with the Father. That's the only way to have your life, that your life can have ultimate meaning and ultimate value is to live it for the glory of God. That can only be done through the righteousness that's not your own, the righteousness of Christ. This can be yours through faith in Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, we're about to, and, and if that's you today, um, I ask you to pray to God and say, Father, I want that. Repent of your sin. Say, I'm a sinner, I'm jacked up, that's me. I would like the righteousness of Christ. I'd like to be accepted into your family. I'd like to be adopted into your family. And that's what it takes. Now, what we're about to do is we're about to take uh, part in the Lord's Supper, uh, or many times it's been called communion. And I, wa- I want to do, I want to, Talk about this just for a second. Um, I'm going to say something that we haven't said before. Um, first off, I'm going to call the Christians to repent. If you're a Christian in this room, before we take the Lord's Supper, I'm calling you to repent. Are you honest? Are you generous? Are you gracious? Are you forgiving? Because Christ has been all those things to you. I'm calling you to repent of your self-righteousness, to repent of your um, moralism, to repent maybe even of your licentiousness, just saying, I can't be good enough, so I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. Repent of that before you come to the body and the blood of Christ. I want to share a couple things. This right here is for believers, and I'm going to go one step further, believers who have been baptized. This is for believers who have been baptized. If you are a believer and you have not been baptized, please let uh, one, of, one of us know and we can, go, we can make that happen. But the, the communion, the Lord's Supper is for believers who have been baptized. Please do not take part in the Lord's Supper unless you are a believer that has been baptized. And this is why. The Lord's Supper was a covenant-making ceremony in which Jesus sat down with his disciples and he made a new people out of them. They sat down as disciples and apostles. They left as his family became the family, part of the family of God. The Lord's Supper then is a meal that commemorates and creates a committed community, committed gospel-centered community. So that's what, that's what we, we celebrate. We're, we're, we're committed to the Father. We're committed to God's work in our life. We're committed to obedience. We're committed to Him. And then we're ultimately also committed to each other. We're committed to being a body. We're committed to being honest with one another, forgiving one another, loving one another, being gracious to one another, being um, generous to one another. The body of Christ reminds us in our consumeristic, individualistic culture that we live in, it's not all about me. Church isn't, listen, this smacks us in the face because we want to come to church, get a little something for us, and then go home. That is not what this is about. We're members of one body. We live sacrificially with one another more than just one day a week. So I want to ask you, Christians, how are your relationships with people in this room? How are they? Are you forgiving? Are you being gracious? Do you need to, as Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar and go to a brother and go to a sister and ask for forgiveness and give grace to them? Do you need to be reconciled with your brother or sister? Now's the time to do that before you take the bread, the body, and the blood of Christ. Now, we believe that this is, um, we don't believe it actually becomes the body of Christ, um, but we believe God is present here, Christ is present here in a supernatural, spiritual way. We believe this is important, that this is a means of grace, that God does do something through the body and the blood of Christ. That's why Jesus specifically said, do this in remembrance of me. He gave us a meal. He gave us something tangible to taste, to remember the work he did on the cross, to remember his life, to remember the gospel, to remember the community and the body. We believe that that there is power in communion. That's why we do it every week. That's why we do it every week. 
So I'm going to pray today. Father, I thank you for giving us this. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that I don't stand here because I'm perfect. I don't stand here because I'm any better at anything that I just preached than anyone else in this room. In fact, Father, I see my sin greater than I see anyone else's sin. So I know at the depths of which I fail to do these things on a daily basis. And I'm only saved by your grace. I'm only saved by your son's perfect obedience on my behalf. But I ask that you would work this new identity that you've given me. Work it out in me. Make me more generous. Make me more loving. Make me more gracious. Make me more forgiving. Make me more honest. Father, I ask that you would do this in me. I ask that you would communicate to us your love and your grace and your forgiveness and that you would grant repentance. You would grant eyes to see you, ears to hear you, hearts to know you. You would grant repentance in this room. This is for your glory and this is for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.